week we're in the book of Romans. As we've been going through a series on Romans, this is actually, I think, we are precisely at the one and a half year mark for our study on Romans. And we've made it through, well, we're at the very end of chapter eight. So we're roughly probably 55% through the book. So we're making good time, I say. Remember, I don't know if y'all recall, when I started this series on Romans, I told you guys about a pastor in England, the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who spent over 10 years in a sermon series on Romans, which somebody did the math on that and decided that that meant that he probably spent like, uh, it, was, it, it was like a verse a week or something like that, I think was the pace at which he would have gone. So compared to that, I'm like light speed cruising here. So... You're welcome, is what I'm trying to say. Tonight, we are in Romans 8, 28 through 30. We're actually, we looked at Romans 8, 28 on the tail end of the passage that I preached two weeks ago, but we didn't give a whole lot of time to it. And so we're gonna include it in this passage tonight and, you know, give a little bit more attention to Romans 8, 28, which is one of the most popular famous verses in all of the New Testament. So how about if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, it's one of the things that we can do is stand to to show honor to this Bible as being more than just the words of men, but the very word of God. And let me read for us. You follow along with me if you would in your own Bible or up on the screen. God's word says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. Lord God, we ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus and in his name alone, amen. Amen, thanks for standing. You may be seated. All things, all of them, not some things, not good things, not pleasant things, all things work together for the good of those who love God. The question I'm gonna have for you today as we reflect on these verses is, do you truly believe that? All things. This verse, which we talked about being a famous one, a popular one, it's, it's everywhere. It's on bumper stickers, it's, you know, in pretty little cursive letters on a t-shirt or whatnot. And I think because of that, it, it's made it lose a little bit of the punch that carries with it when you really think about all things working together for the good of those who love God. I was looking back through kind of Old Testament stories this week and thinking about what some of the figures in the Old Testament would have thought about a statement like that. And and there are some, King David, uh, Abraham, and even I thought of Queen Esther, 
their stories are ones that I feel like they would readily and quickly affirm, yes, all things do work together for the good of those who love God. Think of Queen Esther. Her story in the Bible is one of circumstances coming together in such a, we would say, maybe a coincidental way. Just this sort of fabulous falling together of all these pleasant things so that she is put into the place to be able to save God's people. From the family she was born into, to the natural beauty that God gave her, to the fact that that caught people's attention and that she was looked on with favor, to the fact of chance encounters with people in high places of authority, and it all culminates in this really bizarre dinner party, all things work together. Esther would say, yes, I saw that in my life. And when we read her story, we say, I see that too. But she's not the only person that would say that. There are other figures in the Old Testament and the New whose experience looked a lot different from hers or Abraham's or King David's who would say the same thing. Joseph is a man that we meet in the book of Genesis whose brothers betray him and leave him for dead. They ultimately sell him into slavery. He then is falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. He languages for most of his youth in a dungeon and multiple times he's given this sort of hope dangled in front of him that he's going to be released only to have that hope slowly snuffed out as he's forgotten by the people that said they were gonna help him. Joseph ultimately does get released from prison at the end of his life. And, and if things have been orchestrated in such a way that now he's in a position of authority to like Esther, save God's people. But he went through all of that. And do you remember what he says when he finally meets his brothers again? What you intended for evil, God used for good. All things. The apostle Paul, the very man that wrote the letter to the Romans, in another one of his letters, this time to the church in Corinth, he sort, of, he, he sort of lays down on the therapist couch and he begins to sort of unburden his heart. And he says this, he says, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant of the affliction that we endured in Asia. When we were ministering there, we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. Despaired of life itself. AKA, we wanted to die. But then he follows it up by saying this, but all those trials were to make us lean not on our own strength, but on the strength of the God who raises the dead. All things. Both the characters that we read about in the Bible whose life seemed to like beautifully just stack together in this amazing intricate way and also the characters in the Bible that we know experience the depth of brokenness and pain and sorrow. They both give testimony to the same truth that all things, the pleasant things, the painful things, the comfortable things, the difficult things, the beautiful and the terrible, all of it works together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So I ask you again, do you believe that? If I was a betting man, I would wager 
that many of you guys, even in our small congregation, have entered into church tonight with things looming in the back of your mind and in your heart that are worrying you, causing anxiety, frustrating you, making you angry, wounds that you can't forgive, despair, sorrow, desolation, discouragement, you name it. I know that's what we bring to us sometimes when we come into worship on a Sunday. And the idea that the Bible is telling you and that I'm you know, speaking these words and telling you that that very thing that's worrying you so much right now, that very thing that's frustrating you so much is the exact thing that God is using to work good in your life, that must sound preposterous to you. In fact, for some of you guys, it probably makes you angry right? I'm preparing the sermon this week and I'm like, I I wouldn't be surprised if somebody gets up and storms out hearing somebody like me say that. How dare you, preacher? You would, the thing that's so painful and hurtful in my life, you would dare suggest that God's using that in some way that brings good? Yeah. You can't say it about everybody. I hope you know that in Romans 8, 28, we have sandwiched in between the talk, the stuff about uh, working all things together for the good is it's for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. So we can only say this about those who know Jesus and are following him. I can't say it broadly about the world. I can't say it for those who have rejected Jesus, but I must say it about you if you are a believer in Jesus, following him with all your heart All things are working together for your good. Let's unpack that a little bit. And let's do it starting with the big question that I ask whenever I see that phrase on a bumper sticker or have it show up somewhere. And the question is, what is my good? What is this good that God is working for? How do I define that? Yeah, you see it up here on the screen. What is the good that all things are working towards? Well, we actually don't have to look too far in God's word to find it. I don't have to make you flip to somewhere else or see another scripture. It actually is right under our nose when we read this back half of Romans 8. Because the very next verse after that famous Romans 8.28 says this. I think you'll have it up on the screen. Verse 29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Hey, could you go to the next slide? I think I've got one that that has that up there. There we go. The underlined part. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is your good. That is the good that God is promising you here, that all things will work together in such a way to bring likeness, to bring reflection of the character of Jesus in your life. There are a lot of things that we would define as good with like a lowercase g. You know, I had a good weekend, I had a good meal, I went to a good movie. That's a proper way to use good. Pleasant, nice things that are enjoyable. Yeah, let's call them good. We should. But that good with an uppercase G, the good, there is only one thing that that refers to. 
And that is your life more and more being conformed to the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ. Because when you reflect his character, his kindness, his goodness, his grace, his mercy more and more, it means that you sink deeper and deeper into an intimate relationship with God the Father. And you begin to experience that eternal Trinitarian relationship like the Son and the Father have. That's what God's word is able to say, that is your good. So God takes everything in your life, like we said it before, the, the beautiful and the terrible, the pleasant and the painful, and he's able in his sovereign wisdom and power to work it in such a way that all things are used like a refiner's fire, melting away the impurities and the dross in your life smoothing the rough edges. He's like, a, to mix up the metaphor here, he's, he's like a, a, a molder of clay. Uh, what is that? Is there an actual name for somebody that does that? You know, the, the, on this, the clay that's spinning on the table? The potter. Good night, everybody. The potter, that's it. You know, all I could think of right there is that scene in Ghost where Demi Moore is... A, so yeah, that's where my head's at. Sorry about that. He's the potter, perfectly putting together your life in such a way that molds it to conformity to Christ and he's using all things to get there. That's what he's promising in this verse. And so I, I think back to what we said before, Apostle Paul, he's telling us about his affliction in Asia. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. We were so burdened beyond our own strength, we despaired of life itself. But remember how he reflects on it. He says, but that was to make us rely more on God's strength than our own, AKA that was to conform us more to the image of the son, Jesus. And that's not a bad thing. That's my highest good. Now, I, I wanna do a little bit of a footnote here because there was some confusion after I preached up in paradise this morning. You know, one of the congregants was thinking that I was saying, oh, well, you mean that the afflictions, the hardships are good because God uses them for good. No, sin is bad. Disease, cancer is bad. Brokenness, betrayal, what Joseph went through was bad. Those things are bad in themselves, but our sovereign God is able to use what's intended for evil and use it for good. The good is conformity to Jesus. Just to make that clear. This understanding of what good means, uh, it's key to so many things, but it's especially key to kind of the confusion that arises sometimes when, when people within the church at large begin to talk about God's blessing and what it means for God to bless us and what we're praying for when we want God to bless us. So for instance, the prosperity gospel movement starts 150 so years ago and spreads like wildfire. It's all over the place. It's not just in the United States of America. It's all over the world with preachers on TV, on the radio, congregations all over the world preaching to their people that God wants to bless them with wealth, with expensive cars, with private planes, with perfect health, with healing of their diseases, with eternal youth, which I guess resurrection speaking, that 
is a good promise, but what they mean is that you'd be 90 years old and look like you're 20 with entertainment and pleasure and leisure and comfort and ease. That's what God wants for you. And where are they getting that from? Guess what? Romans 8, 28. They say, don't you see? God wants the good for your life. God wants what is best in your life. And actually in that part, I'd agree with them. I'd say, amen, brother, amen, sister. But before they give me my own show on TBN or whatever channel it is that does it, I would have to make clear that I diverge in my opinions from the prosperity preachers pretty quickly after that. We agree, we are in lockstep agreement that God wants what is best for you. Amen. Where we disagree is on what the best actually is. It ain't a Cadillac. It ain't a private plane. And as hard as it is for me to say this, as a man whose father right now is um, crippled with chronic illness, it's not even perfect health and healing of diseases, not necessarily so. God's best is that all things would work together in your life to more and more mold you to the image of the son Jesus. And whatever it takes to get there, whatever he uses to bring you to that end, you say, God, it's worth it. And you say, well, how, how is that so good? How is that God's best? Just simply being conformed to the image of the son. Listen to what we said earlier. The more and more you reflect the character of Jesus, it means the more you sink deeper in to that father-son relationship that God the father has God the son. That's good. When you have relationship with your God and creator like that, that's where abundance of joy is. It ain't in a Cadillac. That's where the, the overflow in your heart of, of love and peace and hope comes from. And that is where, I tried to say this this morning and totally bungled it, but I'm gonna try it again, all right? As we become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus, we become more and more prepared to spend eternity with God the Father in his blessedness. Do you realize that? We are being prepared right now to enjoy heaven for all it's worth. C.S. Lewis used to talk about that and say, as I become more like Christ, I'm preparing to be able to actually enjoy heaven. Stuck in my sins, stuck in my broken patterns, heaven won't be very enjoyable. <laughs> but as I become more and more conformed to Jesus, I'm getting ready to experience the goodness and the blessedness of heaven for all it's worth. That's why that's God's best in your life. So really my message for today, oh boy, and I'm getting towards the end of my time, is this, if, you, if I've lost you, come back to me for this part. Christian, take heart. Everything in your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly is working together for your good. And that good, the conformity to Jesus Christ is not underwhelming, it's not second best, 
it is the highest good that you were made for. And I promise you, when you're able to look back over the course of your whole life and see even the things that made you weep at present and say, you know what, that served to make me more like Jesus and draw me closer to him, you're gonna say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That was hard, that was painful, that was bad, but if God used it to bring me here, praise his name. Okay, one last thing before we close up for tonight, and that is, next slide, please. Boom, the proof. How can we be sure about all this? You know, it, it's interesting, this, this next little passage here. Well, let, let me read it for you. This is the, the last few verses, the, one, the part with all the big words. I'm gonna um, sort of bounce around a little bit to capture the big words here. But verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the son. Skipping ahead now. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Wow, that's a mouthful, right? Foreknow, predestine, call, justify, glorify. I mean, that's like a, a giant theological textbook right there. And by the way, theologians love this passage because it gives this sort of sequential ordering of the steps of salvation. Sometimes what are called God's decrees of, okay, this comes first, foreknowledge, and then predestination comes next, and then call, and so on and so forth. And so there are a lot of books written. I spent a lot of time in seminary reading about this, and there's a fancy Latin phrase for it, the ordo salutis. But we're not gonna talk about it in that way so much today. Because what I'm more interested in is not sort of an abstract meditation on those big words. I'm more interested on how Paul is using this in his bigger argument. And I believe he's using it as quote unquote proof. So he's just made a claim, all things work together for the good of those who love God. And he anticipates an objection. He anticipates that you're in the church in Rome, you're hearing his letter being read and you hear that and you're like, really? Are we sure about that? It doesn't seem like all things are working together for good. And so he provides this proof, this, you know, you could say warrant, the thing that warrants this claim. And it's to go into the long list of big words that we just read. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Now, you're probably thinking, what on earth does that do to prove the claim about all things? Well, to put it simply and sort of to brush it with a broad stroke here, it, here's how it proves it. What it's saying is that your God has been at work in your story for eternities before you even existed. He has been meticulously working through all things before you even were aware of it, eons before you were aware of it. Before the foundation of the earth, Ephesians 1 says, he knows you, enters into covenant relationship with you. He ordains your steps and predestines you into election in his family. He calls you, he draws you to himself by meticulously putting together the details of your life. He justifies you through the blood of Jesus. 
which was the culmination of a plan that unfolded step by step over thousands of years. God has been working through all things from way before you were even, what's the old phrase, like a, a sparkle in your father, grandfather's eye or something like that? Is that a thing? Yeah, some of you are like, okay. A sparkle in your grandfather's eye, there you go. And if your God's track record is this, working through all things from way before, if that's his resume, then you can trust him when he says, your present circumstances, I'm working all of it together for your good. So here's a story. There was a time uh, when I was in sixth or seventh grade, I can't quite remember, but I was in pre-algebra and I was really struggling. There's this concept, it was crazy. I don't know why I couldn't get it, but the idea that five minus two is equivalent to five plus negative two, it just didn't compute for me. Like I, I didn't get it. And so you can imagine trying to solve equations in algebra, like if I didn't get that, <laughs> I was in trouble. So my dad, St. Jeff, my angel of a dad was helping me with my homework and uh, you know, trying to sort of show me how this operation was done. But at every step, any time there was this, which happens all the time where you try to balance the equation with the positives and negatives, I just objected to it. That doesn't make sense. That's crazy. It's foolishness. And it finally, I think came straight to just accusing my dad of, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And it's funny, I told my mom, I talked to her on the phone last night, I told her I was gonna tell the story and she remembers it. She's like, ooh, I was in the other room. I remember how that went down. Because here's the thing, my dad at the time, he was dual certified as a surgeon and a research pathologist. His uh, articles had been published in dozens of academic journals. He was in charge of calibrating a multi-million dollar electron microscope. Calibrating with numbers, mind you. He graduated top of his class from Duke. He did medical school, top of his class at Northwestern. He won award after award after award in math and science. And I'm a sixth grader telling that man, you don't know how to do math. <laughs> and so my dad calmly basically recited for me what I just told you guys his resume, so to speak. And at the end of it said, son, do you really think my entire career built on knowledge in math and science that started from way before when you were even born, you really think all of that is built on a misunderstanding of sixth grade pre-algebra? <laughs> I said, well, when you put it like that, uh, sadly, I, don't I still think it took me a while to kind of get that concept with the negatives and the positives, but I mean, what do you say when your dad just sort of reads you the riot act like that? There is no comeback. It's funny, when I was starting to tell this to my mom, she reminded me of another story that it wasn't just me, my sister did it too. My sister's a nurse practitioner and when she was in nursing school, there were a few times where my dad was helping her review for an exam. And I, my mom says she remembers I was in college at the time, but she was like, 
I would hear your dad and your sister studying and your sister would insist that this is the way you do it. This is how my teacher said you care for a patient and your dad would respond, well, you both just killed your patient. (laughs) So we all did it at some point to my dad and basically told him a man that had quite a long resume of skills and those things that we knew better. But I think the similar thing is happening here with these verses. We hear God tell us all things work together for the good of those who love God. All things are working together for your good, Brent. But like Brent, if I'm in your shoes, I wanna say, really God? I I don't think you know what you're talking about. This doesn't make sense to me. I don't see it. This doesn't compute. He sits down and says, Let me tell you a bit about myself. I'm the one who entered into covenant relationship with you before I had even spoken the universe into existence, foreknew you. I'm the one that before the foundations of the world were set, I was predestining your life and your election into my family. I'm the one that knowing that you wouldn't come to me on your own, we're working together the details of your life to draw you to myself with my effectual call. I justified you not on a whim, but at the culmination of a plan that unfolded step by step over thousands of years. And in fact, I have glorified you. It's still in the future that you'll be glorified, but it's so certain, it's so complete that I'm gonna talk about it in the past tense and say, you are glorified now because it's so certain. So really, you wanna look at me and say that I don't know what I'm doing, that all things aren't working together for your good, that the plan has derailed somehow. Is that really what you think? I know that there's some words that have come up here that, you know, cause church people to break out in the hives. Predestination, foreknowledge, call. We're gonna talk about that more in future weeks because I know what's right around the corner. Maybe some of you guys do. Romans chapter nine, is the entire chapter leans heavily into those topics. So we're gonna to get to discuss that. And quite frankly, it's gonna be good to discuss that. But for today, what I want you to see more than anything with these words is how they're functioning as proof that your God has been working in your life for eternities before you even existed. And because of that, you can trust him when he says all things work together for your good. That's what's going on here. I uh, started the service tonight. Um, Some of you guys might've missed it, but our opening quote, I quoted a few Uh, stanzas of this poem that come up in Corey Ten Boom's uh, book, The Hiding Place. And I actually have a, there she is, picture of her. And um, the poem references uh, a weaver and a tapestry. And so this, the things that you're seeing on the, the left and the right of her picture is this little square cloth tapestry she used to take with her on speaking engagements at the end of her life. And as you can see, Uh, It was a tapestry, a a picture of this 
crown and gold, really pretty. But the left side of it is the back. And it's what all tapestries look like when you flip them around to the back side. Knots and tangles, disparate threads all over the place, jarring colors against each other. And the reason that she would carry this with her is because it was a constant reminder of Romans 8:28. All those knots and tangles, the all things, the hard things, the painful things, the chaotic things, the things that don't make any sense, that's what she sees when she looks at the back of that tapestry. But what God sees and what ultimately she'll see when it's all said and done is the flip side, the crown, the beautiful image that all those knots went into making. That's the side of it that God is up to. And so here's the poem in full with that context. I've got it on the next slide. She actually, I don't believe, wrote this. Some people attribute it to her, but I think she is actually quoting it in her book. And we don't know the author. It's anonymous, but it says this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors that he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the three threads of gold and silver and the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust you. That really is what all this has been about tonight. Trust that you are sovereignly in control of all things and we can trust that you're working them together for the good of those who love you. Thank you. Thank you for that promise. May we be people that truly believe it and hold on to it in the good times and the bad. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.